Good morning. Uh, if I, I do want to just real quickly uh, just talk about the prophetic ministry thing just for a second. I know that if, if that's not familiar to you, that sounds so bizarre probably. What is he talking about? Uh, prophetic ministry, but we believe that God speaks to his children. We believe that in prayer for people, sometimes God can give us an inkling about certain things to pray for in order to comfort and strengthen and encourage his people. And so that's why we specifically sign up for prophetic ministries for people that are comfortable doing that, that have an understanding about what that means. I would encourage you, if you, if you believe that God speaks uh, when people are praying for other people and that there's encouragement to be had there, uh, maybe consider doing that. It's just a, it's a form of prayer that we do in order to encourage people after the service. And, and uh, there, there's a lot of thought that goes into that. There's a lot of teaching behind it that we don't have the opportunity to uh, really discuss in announcements. But if you do want to, to know more, ask. And so that you can understand what we're talking about when we say that. I realize we sometimes we just talk about these things as if everybody understands them, and that's not always the case. So I just want to be sure that if you're curious about that or you want more information, don't be afraid to ask. Are we good? Can everybody smile? Now you're going to make me feel better if you smile, okay? Because sometimes I don't know what I'm getting into, what kind of a crowd we have today. Yeah, I actually just... Uh, you guys are always kind, and I appreciate that very much. Uh, we have been talking about, can I have that clicker right there, please, Kylie? Thank you very much. We have been talking about the Word of God for quite a while now. Um, I think we started in uh, January, and we talked about how God speaks, and the written Word of God, and those kinds of things, and we've been focusing in on the Scripture. You know, is, is the Word of God that we call the Word of God here, is it really the Word of God? And if it is the Word of God, what does that mean? How does it impact our lives? Is it authoritative? Should I read it? How do I understand it when I read it? Because sometimes things are difficult to understand. Today you guys should have got a handout with the program. Uh, I was like photocopying sticky notes with handwriting on them for you. And fortunately for you, Shereya stepped in and said, no, that's not going to work. And she designed that awesome little handout that you have today. So we're all gifted in different ways. And so we appreciate Shereya in that regard. I hope you find that helpful. You'll be able to follow along a little bit uh, with some of those things. But really, that's meant to go in your Bible and for something that you can have with you to help you when you're reading your Bible and think about some of the things that we've been talking about. I want to start, as I have every week in recent weeks, with this scripture, Paul writing Timothy, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. We want to be a people that are acquainted with the sacred writings, not just the guy standing up talking to you today, but all of us as individuals. And why do we want to be acquainted with them? They're able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for, the training in, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We want to know the Scripture. What does it say? We want to be acquainted with it. I want to um, review a few things I talked about last week because we want to talk about interpreting. How do I read and then comprehend and understand and apply what I've just read in the Bible? Because sometimes we read things, and we're going to look at a few scriptures today that if we just randomly ran across them, we might have some serious questions about what is going on. But a couple of things I want to review from last week that I talked about. You read it. 
Don't let me read it for you and then tell you what it says. You have an unprecedented access to the Scripture. Unlike anyone ever through all all the ages since the creation, you have an access that no one has ever had. And so I would encourage you, you read it. You know what it says. That's what, that way, if I make something up up here and I say something that maybe doesn't line up with your remembering, you might want to go search it out and, and understand. The second thing we talked about, these are spiritual words. They're from God. There's a spiritual discernment that I think uh, needs to happen, that, that we want to invite God into our process to lead us. God, help me understand what your word says. What was going on in this situation? Lead us by your spirit. And then we started to talk about context. What is context? It's everything going on in the situation where the writing took place. What was the original author wanting to communicate to the original reader? What was actually being said? And so we looked at the story of David and Goliath and talk about the five smooth stones that David took out of the creek. And, you know, we could maybe use those as illustrations, but what is the author trying to communicate? That David got five smooth stones out of the creek, right? He's just communicating something in that context that was happening. And so context is important. What did the original author want to communicate with the original reader? So if I read a passage and I'm not really sure what's going on, I'm like, well, who wrote this? And who are they writing to? Now we're going to start to unpack some other things about context to help us as we're studying the Scripture. And here's a major one that we want to talk about in context. When we're reading the Bible and we run across a verse, sometimes it's helpful to ask this question. Where is the text in the history of redemption? What do I mean by that? Well, we talk about the Bible as a historical document, and it's accounting from the time man was created all the way up through just the the beginning of the church age. Uh, right after Jesus left the earth. And it's, the idea is that the Bible is a historical document of the redemption of man, the redeeming, the recovering, the paying the price for, for the forgiveness of sin. The whole of the Bible, really, this is a theme throughout about what is it all about. It's about this redemption. Well, it's happened in stages over time. You know, God, we see a story of creation. It's fairly simple in a lot of ways. We start to see themes develop there. Truths start to develop. And it starts to carry out throughout the Scripture. Well, it matters sometimes where in that history whatever you're reading took place. And we're going to look at a few examples of that. I want to talk about this, though, a little bit. There, there's different ways of discussing it. There's different you know, major time frames from Adam to Noah and, and et cetera, et cetera. God is introducing himself, reintroducing himself to mankind throughout time. And he does so incrementally. So what we knew and understood about God in the days of Noah develops throughout the ages. All the way to the time of Jesus, we understand a lot more about who God is and what God's heart is by the time we get to Jesus. And so sometimes God was introducing himself in increments to mankind. And we call those covenants. They were agreements that he made with mankind all throughout the ages. And so he makes, a, he makes a covenant with Adam in the very beginning. Subdue the earth and rule over it. You know, the basic concept of humanity on earth. God is instituting this through Adam, but then he meets other characters along the way we meet, and God is making agreements with them, introducing himself to them, and starting to uh, tell them things, so to speak, about who he is and how to relate to him. Well, when you're reading your Bible and you're reading something from the days of Adam, it matters. Whereas if you're reading something from Paul's letters in the church age, things have changed by then. How did they change? And that, that becomes a very complex study. Like we're, There's no way we're going to unpack all that today, but it is an important question to ask yourself when you're reading my, your Bible. Where 
in the history of this whole salvation process did this writing take place because it informs my understanding. All right, could you put these characters in order? For those of you that don't read your Bible or never really have or don't, don't have an understanding and are wanting to know things, here's, here's some, and some of you will know, but there's a way to think about this whole timeline in very simple ways. It doesn't have to be a big, complex timeline with every single date and character, but there, here's some main characters that God made covenant with. Could you put these in order if you had to? Moses, Jesus, Abraham, Noah, Adam, David. I think if you look at your little cheat sheet I gave you, you already know the answer to this question. But here's one of the things. If I know where these characters are throughout history and I'm reading my Bible, that immediately gives me some comprehension of where in that salvation history I am reading. Here's a very simplified timeline that can help us when we're reading the Bible so that we can understand where something was written. And it does matter, and I will explain some of that in a minute. Of course, we see Adam somewhere towards the creation there on the far end of the left-hand side of the timeline. You see Noah is the next major character that God makes a covenant with that we see. Abraham, of course. Then Moses. And oh, it's a big deal when Moses comes on the scene because God gives the Ten Commandments at that point and the whole Jewish, he makes Israel a, a, a nation under a law that he has given at that point. And so we have the Ten Commandments and all the Jewish law and feasts and all that stuff which were in place all the way to the time of Jesus. And then from Jesus forward is what we call the church age. We have been in the church age for 2,000 years. It's a pretty long time. It might be the longest timeline on there. The longest stretch of covenant agreement between God and man. You are here, way on the far right-hand side of that timeline. But when I read my Bible, where am I looking in the history? I'm going to give you an example. Let's just say tomorrow morning you pick up your Bible and you flip open to the amazing book of Leviticus and you run across this verse. And this is instruction being given to the people. It says, and the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. How many of you would weep Tomorrow morning, if you got up before you were making your bacon for breakfast and you stumbled across this verse, uh oh, ignorance was bliss, wasn't it? No bacon, no sausage, no ham, no pork chops in my new Instapot we got for Christmas. How very sad. This is God giving instruction to his people. I didn't know we weren't supposed to eat pig. Well, if I understand where this is in the timeline of salvation history, I begin to have an understanding of how to apply it to my life. Under the Jewish laws that were instituted with Moses, and we could talk for months about how to apply these things, but in those, they had clean and unclean foods. They also had sacrifices they had to make. They had sacrifices of their crops. They had sacrifices of their animals. You had to offer certain sacrifices based on certain sins and certain times of the year. And had a very complex sacrificial system. And they had lots of clean and unclean foods. And if things were made unclean, they had to wait till the next day. And they had to wash in certain ways and all this stuff. And man, if you read through that stuff, it, it can become overwhelming in a hurry. And, and the Jews had a very strict and organized way of relating to God through those laws. Well, 
if I don't know that God has been introducing himself over time or how to apply things, that can make for a real problem and a lot of confusion. It's why it's important when we're interpreting our Bible that we understand the whole of what is being communicated there. Well, we fast forward to Mark chapter 7. Where is Mark, by the way, on our timeline? It's in the life of Jesus. You've just fast forwarded 1,500 years. Jesus is on the earth and he's teaching and they're asking him about these kinds of things. He said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said what comes out of a person is what defiles him. So one of the things that Jesus really brought onto the scene about the Jewish law was that these things are a foreshadowing and they're an illustration. They're a way of God starting to show who he is and what he wanted. I mean, he had all these sacrifices, which we know ultimately culminate with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself. So the law, the law tells us what sin is. Uh, the books of Romans, Hebrews, and Galatians are all full of instruction about these kinds of things because they really had a hard time in the early church because they're, they're a branch of Judaism. They're breaking away from the Jewish customs, and so they had to sort out where was God? What, what is our relationship with God now, now that the ultimate sacrifice has been made on our behalf? And that the nature of that relationship changed through time. It's important to understand when you're reading your Bible, where in the timeline does this writing fall? Because it can impact what you read. And it's not to say that the Old Testament law now is somehow completely irrelevant. In fact, what we have today is built upon it. And it's important to know how to process that. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we, may, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. There was definitely a transition between these periods of time, and it's important for us to understand that. And if you're any sort of a student about this thing, you know that we could go on and on and on and on about the relevance of the law and how it applies in our lives today, but that's just a skimming of the surface. How about this? Well, I have the address at the bottom, so it sort of gives this away, but then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Ooh, where is this in the Bible? Hopefully not the end. Is this in Revelation? Thank God it's not, right? Kind of all ends with God going, all right, I've had enough. No, it's important to know where in the timeline this takes place. This is right before Noah, and the very next verse says something along the lines of, but God found favor with Noah. Or God, you know, Noah was righteous before the Lord. God saw Noah, and, he, and as you know, Noah's ark. Here's where the story, God, the pre-flood times are very interesting to study. But God had decided, I'm, I'm starting over. I'm washing the earth clean. You know, we see foreshadowings of baptism. We see foreshadowings of judgment. We see all these hints as these themes develop throughout Scripture. But in this particular one, good thing this was back then. And then God saves Noah, floods the earth, wipes out mankind, and kind of starts over, in a sense, with Noah. Think that's important to know where that is? Yeah, it matters. It matters where it is. Oh, here's some good stuff. 
Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Wow. When did that happen? And who was this that saw this? And where did this take place? This is some crazy stuff that this person witnessed. Who is the person that witnessed this? John. In the book of Revelation, which the title kind of gives it away. John, this is the very last book in the Bible. This is a prophetic book looking forward to the end of time. John has this spiritual vision. Boy, context is important. This isn't some historical thing in the Old Testament that somebody witnessed God doing. It's something prophetic that John foresaw. And so you got to understand, what, what was the... All right, I hope you go and read some of Revelation and go, what was going on that John was having this revelation? What is this all about? And what is it about? It's the future. We're looking ahead. It matters in the timeline where it is to inform our understanding. Does that seem important to you to know where that is? Yes, it's very important. So we've just barely scratched the surface. But when you're reading your Bible, sometimes stop and ask yourself, Where on the timeline does this take place? How does that inform my understanding of this particular passage of Scripture? All right. Here's another concept when it comes to context to consider when you're reading something. Does does what you're reading, does it give approval to what's happening? Does it give disapproval to what's happening? Or is it just reporting what happened? Sometimes this can be very important when you're reading something. Wow, this terrible thing happened, and it's in the Bible, so God must have approved of it. No, not necessarily. And so we have to be sure that we see whether or not there's an approval or not. We talked last week about uh, the parable of building your house on the rock. The wise man, he who hears these words of mine and does them, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. What's Jesus giving approval to there? Hear the words and do them. I'm approving this. But I'm disapproving this idea that you would hear my words and not do anything with them. So there's a, there's a, you can hear that disapproval in the communication of what's being spoken in the Scripture by Jesus. So when you're reading along and you're reading one of those crazy Old Testament stories or something like that, recognize, is there, is there a sense that God is approving this? Or disapproving? Does that inform my interpretation of what's being said in the Scripture? It's important to do this as you're reading. I want to just look at a couple passages quickly here so that we can understand. In 1 Samuel, this is a crazy context going on in this situation. And uh, I can't unpack all of it for you. You should go and read it. But Saul is the first king of Israel. And he's in trouble And God is rejecting Saul as the king because he's been a knucklehead about quite a few different things. And uh, Samuel is speaking to Saul. He says, The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. David, who killed Goliath, he's about to become the king of Israel. 
Judah first and then Israel as a whole? Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. What do you hear there? What's happening? The prophet Samuel is disapproving of what Saul has done. Saul has disobeyed God. God said, Saul, I want you to wipe out the Amalekites, which I will talk about that in just a second. Therefore, God has done this. There's an interpretation here. There's an interpretive statement. Why was Saul being removed as king? Because God disapproved of Saul's decisions and how he had not done what God wanted him to do. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. Samuel was dead at this point. So what he was saying, okay, that's a whole story. I can't unpack all that right now. But he's, by tomorrow you'll be dead. And he's prophesying to Saul, telling him, you're going you're gonna to be joining me here real shortly, and you'll be dead. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hands of Philistines. And it came to pass. It was true. Saul and Jonathan were killed on the battlefield with the Philistine, by the Philistines. Saul actually ended up taking his own life. All right, well, that's interesting. God disapproved of what Saul did, but it does catch my eye that did God want to wipe out a people group from the face of the earth? That sounds a little intense. Sometimes we read those Old Testament stories. There's been theologies in the past that actually, this is out there, but believe that the God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New Testament, that they're entirely different gods. And so there's been a lot of kind of fringe things that have happened over the ages believing that. No, it's, it, it is the same God, we believe, and I think that's clear in the Scripture. But what is that all about? How does God wipe out whole people groups? Doesn't that make him cruel and ruthless and evil somehow, that he would do such a thing? Well, context helps. Knowing the whole story helps. Why did God want to wipe Amalek off the face of the earth. Amalek was the grandson of Esau, for those of you who don't know, and he was the father of the Amalekites. Well, if you know anything about the history of Israel coming out of Egypt, the Amalekites were the first group of people to attack the Israelites. They were, they were hostile towards Israel, and God was angry with them. And this is Exodus chapter 17, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial. Write this. We talked about this in weeks gone by, write this down as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. This is an execution of God's justice on a group of people that were his enemies, people that uh, refused God and attacked his people. They They made themselves the enemies of God. Is God just then in dealing judgment in those situations? Yes, he is. God is just. He's completely just, and he's right in his judgment to do so. And so he he does that. So there we go. We see another thing there in context of that scripture to Samuel. What was the context about Amalek? Well, Amalek was a people that God was an enemy of God, and he wanted to wipe them out, and he went to use Saul to do it, and Saul refused to do it. And so God took the kingdom of Israel away from him for his refusal to do what God told him. Context matters. Approval or disapproval matters when we're reading in order to understand what the text is about. Here's some more things to consider uh, in that idea of approval or disapproval or report. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. What's their disapproval of? Not just hearing, but there's approval of doing. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So you're seeing these contrasts of approval and disapproval. And so when we read that in the text, it gives us understanding of what God 
is trying to communicate. How about this one? Hey, if you want a memory verse for this week, here it is. Easiest one in the whole Bible. Every third grader in Bible quiz could tell you this. The shortest, easiest verse to memorize in the Bible, John eleven forty five. Jesus wept. What do I learn from this verse? First and foremost, Jesus wept. It's reporting something. It's just giving me a piece of information. Now, I can learn things from that. Jesus was capable of crying. Jesus felt emotion. What were the circumstances surrounding Jesus weeping? Does anybody know? You'll have to go look that up and find out. Jesus wept. He was grieving. He was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, but he was grieving over the death of Lazarus. Yeah, there's some things we can learn about that, but it's reporting. We don't see an approval or a disapproval here. We just see a basic communication of information about what was going on. We have lots of stories in the Bible. Hey, Moses, when he was born, you know, uh, Pharaoh, okay, here's a foreshadowing. Pharaoh was killing all of the baby boys of Israel, and Moses' mom hid him. Does that sound like another story you know in the Bible? A foreshadowing of when Jesus was born, and Herod starts killing all the little boys, trying to find the king of the Jews and have him killed before he even has a chance to grow up. You start reading through the Old Testament, you start seeing that the Old Testament is pointing towards the Christ, the Messiah that's to come. Anyway, it's just reporting the story. Moses gets, yeah, there's the foreshadowing there. There's a theme from the very beginning. We'll talk about themes here in a little bit. Okay, when you're reading your Bible, I think this is a very important thing for us to consider. When we're we're reading and we're developing what we believe the Scripture is saying, we sometimes, here's an important guideline. Don't, when you're, when you're coming up with what you think about a scripture and what it's saying, be able to give reasons for why you believe what you believe. Not just have an opinion about it. There's a difference between the two. See, we have, we have, like a, we have emotions, we have compulsions, we have preconceived ideas, we have opinions about things, and so we read our opinion into it rather than just trying to look for what it's actually saying and developing our belief based on that. We, need, we want to give reasons for what we believe, not just opinions why we believe them. Those opinions should be tied to something in the Scripture that we can reasonably show to be true. And so this happens all the time when we're reading our Bibles. We read into it our own preconceived biases and things like that. There's also the idea that like, if you have an opinion about something, and you're reading it and you, just, and you just think, well, I think it means this but my reason is just my own biases, my own opinions, my own emotions about it rather than what it actually says. You're, you're, you're making your own opinion more authoritative than the Word of God itself. This is a really, really important concept when it comes to interpretation. Accidentally making yourself God and not let, letting God be God when it comes to interpreting the Scripture. So we have some fancy words we can talk about in this, but we don't want to be, we don't want to be, when something is lined up with the Bible, we say it's biblical. When we can see it shown in the Bible, then it's biblical. But if it's not in the Bible, but it's not against the Bible either, we would call it abiblical. It's not there. The Bible's kind of quiet about it. We don't know if God is for it, and we don't really know if He's against it. It's just an abiblical thing. 
Or, you know, we do a lot of abiblical things, you know, with the way we do worship, with the way we do preaching, with the way we conduct our services. There's, it's not anti-biblical, but it's not biblical either. We don't see an exact reason in the Bible to do it a certain way, but we just make a judgment and a decision, and we call that abiblical. But then you've got things that are anti-biblical, where we do something or think something or have an opinion or take an action that is an actual contrast to the teaching of God, which is ultimately the heart of God. And so when we do those things, we're anti-biblical. We don't want to be anti-biblical. We want to have a biblical reason for what we believe, not just an opinion. Okay, we call this exegesis and eisegesis. Okay, I'm not giving you degrees after this message, okay? This is not college education, but I know it's a little, it's a little much sometimes if you've never heard these words before. And, and we can turn into, look, we could... I should just take a second here and communicate heart, okay? We don't learn things so we can be scholastic snobs, okay? This kind of stuff sometimes produces an elitism, an attitude that is disgusting, and it really drives me crazy. And so people get on their high horse about whatever their particular theology is, and they can get, there's a snobbery, do you hear what I'm saying, that can develop when we start, when we get overly, overly whatever about Things. And so I just want to caution us in that. Yes, we're, we're learning, we're, we're, you know, lots of information is coming in, but this is about God and your relationship with God. It's so that you can have a thriving, healthy, heartfelt, spirit-led relationship with God and with the people around you. Not that you can just have information to bring up at parties to sound cool. It's so that our relationship with God can develop and our impact on the world around us can be as in alignment with God as we can be in order that we be more fruitful and productive. So there's just a little plug for the heart behind all this. This is you and your relationship with God, not just information. Okay, what is exegesis? Exegesis is something we want to do when we're reading or preaching uh, from the Bible. It's that we would interpret the text uh, by a way of a thorough analysis of its content, to pull out ex, like the word exit, you know, that's from the Greek, exegesis. We're, we're pulling out of the Scripture what it actually says. Thoroughly examining it, what does it mean? Eisegesis would be to interpret a text with a preconceived idea of its meaning to read into, ice, to read into the text one's own ideas. So we talked about this last week with David and the Five Smooth Stones. And we, we, took, we had a number of examples of, you know, if you're reading that, you could read into it that it means, oh, it's the five gifts to the church, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. Well, I've just read that into the text. It's not in the text. I didn't exegete meaning out of David's story with Goliath, realizing that that's connected to those. Now, I could maybe use it as an illustration or something, but I can't derive a doctrine based on those five smooth stones saying that it's the five gifts to the church. They just both happen to be the number five is about all we can tell from the Scripture. I don't want to read into it what it doesn't say. Okay, we do this with a lot of the texts, and, and so there, there gets to be controversial things. What are some of the more controversial subjects in our society? Mostly surrounding sexuality. You know, sexuality and genders and marriage and those kind of things. Okay, well, I guess the Bible used to say that sexual behavior outside of marriage was sin in any form. That was sin. When did that change? How did I read into the text what it doesn't say? 
How did I decide that now my belief in my society is going to be that it's okay for you to be sexual outside of a marriage covenant? It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that anywhere. There's no justification for that. We exegete the, Bibles about, the Bible verses about sexuality. And when we do that, what do we see? God approves certain things and he disapproves certain things. We don't have the right to read in our opinion into it to make it mean something it doesn't mean. Exegesis is very important to knowing really what God thinks about things. So when we're wrestling with these difficult issues in our society and how to handle them, first of all, just trying to establish what's true, we have to exegete from the Scripture, read it for what it actually says, examine it, so that I can give a reason for what I believe, not just have an opinion about it. You understand how important this is? And so if you're struggling in your own mind with certain things theologically, how about the sovereignty of God versus free will? Am I reading into it my own opinions, or what does it actually say? We sang it in a song today, I don't know if you noticed, about being predestined before the foundations of the world. That's not free will, is it? How do these two things interact together? And so it's important that we don't read into it our preconceived ideas, but that we actually just objectively, there's the word I wanted, I want to just go into it with no preconceived ideas, just read it for what it says. What does it say? And if I study the context, and maybe I I have access to the Hebrew and the Greek, maybe I can dig in even a little deeper even if I have to, to pull the actual meaning out of what God intended it to say. And when we start having to make these big um, allegorical leaps and ultra-nuanced ideas in order to come to our conclusion, rather than what the Bible actually says, we're starting to tread on thin ice. If I can't give reason for that, it doesn't stand up to Scripture. Very, very important concepts you know, uh, I think it was uh, Paul. I think it was Paul writing to Timothy, saying, um, "You know, guard the doctrine. Watch your life and 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 the doctrine, because by it you will save both yourself and your hearers." What we choose to believe is actually extremely important, because when when we're in alignment with God, there's a fruitfulness and there's a blessing. But when we're rebelling against God, there's not fruitfulness and there's not blessing. And so we want to do things to be in alignment with God because this is about our relationship with Him. It's not just about theories and knowledge. It's about relationship. And I want, to, I want to please God. I want to be in a healthy relationship with Him. I don't want to be rebelling against Him. So how do I get truth? I have to exegete what's in the Scriptures. <clears throat> Eisegesis being reading into it. Let's, here's an example. <laughs> One of the most controversial examples in the Bible. God called the, day, the light day and the darkness He called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. You're like, well, what's so controversial about that? The story of Genesis. Well, it's that funny little word at the very end of the sentence, day. And that word is yom in the Hebrew. And, and so it's, it's, the reason it's become so controversial is all, this, all the science community and all of these uh, information coming at us tells us that the world is a million billion years old, right? And, and so uh, how is it that... Uh, or, or we just struggle to believe that God could do so much in one 24-hour period on the earth. And we look at things like evolution and, and we say, well, if evolution is true, or if this, all this science and information is true, then there's no way that all this happened in one day. There's no way God made all the animals in one day. That's what science tells us, right? I'm not anti-science, I think as we learn and we grow, we're, it's actually giving us more and more in terms of believing God. But that word day in some time, sometimes 
can be translated like a period of time, like in the days of Elijah, you know, in the days of Abraham. It's not just a day necessarily. Those are plural examples, but there's also a day where it can mean an age, a long time, a long period of time. So how do they choose to use the word day? They look at the context. What does this say? Evening and morning, day and night. The sun is rising, the sun is setting on the earth. That's how this is described. So our, you know, we come to the conclusion that the word day is a 24-hour period here because of the context. The sun rose, the sun set, God called it morning, God called it evening, those kind of things. Now sometimes we, so we're starting to have this collision of should I read into it all what I know about science? I, can't, I shouldn't. That's not good biblical interpretation. I look at the words, I look at the context, and I arrive at the conclusion that the word day is a 24-hour period. Why? Because there was evening, there was morning, there was the sunrise and the sunset. God talks about the moon and the stars in those first days of creation. And he goes on and does this throughout the story of creation. So, uh, you know, people say, well, you take it very literally. Well, I don't have any license to not take it literally. There's nothing in the Bible that tells me that this is metaphorical. It just illustrates and says, this is how God did it. So if I'm exegeting properly, I can't come to a different conclusion. Now, we, we take into consideration, Peter said, well, God's not slow in keeping his promises, as some of us consider slow. With God, a day is a thousand years. And so for some of us, that gives us license to say, well, a day is as a thousand years. Well, that would be taking this out of context in order to make it mean that. Because the context around it says it was morning and evening, day and night, on the first day. And there's no, there is no license for us. There's nothing given there that we should believe something else. If I'm going to believe something else, it's extra biblical and potentially anti-biblical. Do you see what I'm saying? So exegesis is very important that we do it well. A couple other tips here for us. When we're reading the Bible, the Bible is it's the Word of God. It's ultimately about God and God's relationship with man. We talked about that redemptive history. Here's a question to ask yourself. I'm reading this verse this morning. What does it tell me about God? Does it teach me something about God, about the nature of who God is? Oh, today's Scripture taught me that God is just. Today's Scripture taught me that God loves me. Today's Scripture taught me that, you know, whatever. What does the Scripture teach about God? And then the other thing to take into consideration, and, and you know, we I can't unpack the idea of the Trinity and God and Jesus are one and yet, yet different personalities, three and one. How does it point to Jesus Christ? The whole of the Old Testament points to Jesus, and the whole of the New Testament flows from Jesus. Jesus is the central point of the Scripture. It leads up to Him, and it flows from Him. So we should ask ourselves when we're reading the Scripture, how does this point to Jesus Christ? Very important thoughts. I mean, we could take a lot of examples probably and, and look at that. Okay, I want to talk about themes. And I'm glad I have some time. I thought maybe I wouldn't today to get to this. This is one of my favorite things about biblical interpretation. All throughout the Bible, you, you know, you run across something. We talked about this in the past, about the law of first mention. And the Bible story starts out... Garden of Eden, creation of man, sin enters, and we start to see these themes get established right there in the beginning, and then they're carried on. It, it almost reads like a novel of just like the beginning of the story, the conflict, the character development, the additional information, and the resolution of it all when it ends. And so we see this development, these themes, and just like in a storybook, you, you see themes develop over time. 
And so when you're reading something in the Bible, where does this theme appear elsewhere in the Bible? That helps you interpret. It helps you come to an understanding of why it's there and what it means. So, in the beginning, oh, there's, there's the theme of God being the creator and the authoritative one right away in the Bible. We see the sin enter. We don't know much about sin in the very beginning. We just know that God didn't want them eating from a, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which I think in a somewhat literal sense was actually what it was called, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Man was innocent then, running around naked. It was awesome. Had to be warm, I'm sure. They're in the Garden of Eden, right? They're innocent. They're unaware of all these things that we're now aware of. But anyway, sin comes on the scene then. So we see this theme of man's rebellion, themes of sinfulness from beginning all the way through the end. And it's really about God redeeming that sin. We see themes of marriage right in the beginning. It's established right in the very first creation. Right, right, right in the very first creation, that's an oxymoronic statement. Right in the very beginning. God is establishing, what is this relationship between men and women? Why did God make them? Why did he design them to come together? What were the parameters of that relationship? And that theme starts right in the very beginning of Scripture. And it develops over time. And so we start to see that development throughout the Scripture. So when we read it, where are those themes? One I want to focus on with you this morning is this one that is, I think, arguably, probably, Yeah, it is. I think the most profound theme throughout the Scripture, at least in my opinion. How about we'll put it that way? When, you know, when Satan deceives Eve, curses come upon mankind. And they're they're important to read and understand because they inform our way of life 6,000 years later, if you think literally about the Scripture. And when God is cursing the serpent, Satan, he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Well, in the moment when that was spoken, I mean, there was no way they could comprehend how that was actually going to play out over time. But you and I now, having the benefit of being able to look back, can see how this theme has played out through the whole of Scripture. The The concepts of offspring are rich in the Bible about how they develop all through the Old Testament. There's a lot of that there. But who is the offspring of the woman? Oh, well, Abel is born. Abel is born, and he's righteous before God. Maybe Abel is the offspring that's going to crush the head of the serpent. No, Abel is killed by Cain. But it's a foreshadowing of a righteous one. There's coming an offspring who will crush the head of the serpent. Well, Abraham comes along. He's a man of faith. God says he's righteous. Is he the offspring? You have to realize that in their situation, they're remembering these things. They're they're their own record of what God has said. But Abraham has Isaac in his old age. It's a miraculous birth. Isaac, you know, is Isaac the offspring who will crush the head of the serpent? Well, there's a lot of foreshadowing of it. But no, Isaac grows old and dies and does a lot of his own has a lot of his own issues. He's not. And, and so on and so forth. You see this. David and Goliath. Oh, here is the, here is the, here's the one after God's own heart, a worshiper full of faith who slays the giant. Is this the offspring of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent? So you see what I'm saying? There's a taste, a theme, a foreshadowing, always all throughout the Old Testament, looking forward to the offspring of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. 
And of course, now with hindsight, we all know that culminates with Jesus Christ and actually isn't even finished yet, that it's not over yet. And we actually read that scripture in Revelation about death being thrown into the lake of fire, this idea that Jesus comes back and reigns in authority and defeats his enemies at the culmination of time. There are very, very powerful themes. Some of those other Genesis ones, what we talk about, yeah, just who mankind is, what his plight in life is, marriage, sin, the tree of life. We see the tree of life right there in the very beginning in that first story. But you see it mentioned throughout the whole Bible. This is amazing that through hundreds of authors over thousands of years, these themes persevere. It's one of the things that just gives us an assuredness of God's word. And right at the end of the book of Revelation, it says the tree of life grows along the riverbanks and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. Genesis chapter 2, all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, this theme of the tree of life. And really, who is the tree of life, actually? Jesus himself. This, all these themes of Scripture pointing to this salvation, this redemption of mankind. I hope you find those handouts today informative and helpful. Put them in your Bible. Follow along in those notes. Maybe uh, I, I just don't neglect uh, reading of the Scripture. Jesus was familiar with the Scripture. He used it against his enemy to overcome. It's what establishes our belief patterns. It, it helps us establish how to treat one another. So even then, when we realize that something is wrong or sinful, we also, if we're reading the Bible, know that we're to treat one another with grace and love and have long-suffering before there's things like discipline and those kinds of things. So anyway, would you stand, please? You all right with that? You stretched a little bit? Hope I, I just hope you're motivated to draw closer to God and grow in your relationship with Him and read His Word. Father, we thank you so much for your Holy Spirit that is in us, leading us, guiding us. Even as we read your word, Lord, we know these are spiritual words and they're spiritual truths for us to apprehend. And it's amazing, Lord, that just by your word, creation came to exist. And by your word, we've been saved. Everything will be fulfilled and accomplished as, as you have said that it would. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing which I sent it. Lord, we thank you for that promise and we thank you for those words. I pray that your word would be stirring in each one of us, Lord, as we go on about our day and our lives. Praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.